John Ziegler here, excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly. And my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 118 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a truly conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him and unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted, even in these very strange times in which we now live. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. And follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. Later on in this podcast, an interview with the director of a brand new documentary film, about the story of Roger Ailes and how that led, his life led to the presidency of Donald Trump. It's called Man in the Arena. It's very good, and I urge you to stay tuned for that interview. But first, the Democratic Convention is currently underway as we speak. The first two nights are in the books, and a convention obviously unlike any other in American history because it's been done almost entirely on tape and with no crowds. Uh, and done almost entirely in, on television or for the purposes of television uh, because of the coronavirus uh, pandemic. I, I will say that um, I've watched a lot of it. I haven't watched all of it. I, I have a good sense of pretty much everything that has happened. I will say that um, in the big picture, the Democrats have done a good job of reminding people like me uh, why Joe Biden is the better man between the two who are running for president. Correct. Uh, and this was really why I had, at the very beginning of this, urged Democrats to vote for Joe Biden, that he needed to be the nominee. Now, obviously, the world has dramatically changed since then. I, I have felt very much over the last two days thinking, thank God it's not Bernie Sanders who's the nominee right now, because— as bad as those around Biden are, at least there is some semblance 
uh, at least a, a smidge of rationality in all of this. At least they seemingly care, at least want to pretend about appealing to disaffected Republicans like myself. If Bernie Sanders was the nominee, my God, under these circumstances, it would have just been a complete shit show. Uh, that might have been better for Donald Trump, but it would not have been better uh, for the country. So I think they've done a pretty decent job of reminding people that Joe Biden is a decent person, uh, that he's a better man than Trump, uh, because it's almost all on tape. Uh, it's it's easy to to avoid the issues that may be relevant regarding uh, Joe Biden's uh, mental health. I'm not someone who believes that he is totally gone. I'm somewhere in the middle. I, I'm definitely not one of those who believes that this is not an issue. I think that uh, his mental capabilities are, in fact, an issue. He seems to be diminishing. I don't think there's any chance in the world he serves two terms. And that is relevant mostly because of what it means regarding his vice presidential nominee. Uh, Kamala Harris is by far the most significant pick in the history, modern history at least, uh, of vice presidential picks because there is an exceedingly good chance that Biden is going to win. And there's a very, very good chance that she will be president clearly by 2025, if not sooner, simply by virtue of having been chosen as his vice presidential nominee and what that means in reality. But getting back to the convention so far, I think on the substance, they've done a decent job. I mean, I'm not the the uh, the focal point. I'm not the demographic they're really targeting, although they're trying to at least make some sort of a play for people like me. Uh, you know, they've had lots of Republicans speak. Uh, John Kasich uh, spoke and a couple of other ancient Republicans who really aren't Republicans anymore. I do find it absolutely uh, horrifying to think that John McCain can be praised at the Democratic convention now, uh, but won't even be mentioned at a Republican convention. It's just flat out ridiculous. I mean, that's where we are now. I mean, so there was a video last night narrated by Cindy McCain, John McCain's widow, uh, where, uh, you know, they, they talk about John McCain's great relationship with Joe Biden effectively. Uh, the, the McCain, uh, I don't know if the family, but certainly Cindy is effectively uh, endorsing Joe Biden. McCain's name will not even be mentioned at the Republican convention, which is obscene, considering he was the 2008 nominee and gave his life to, to the party and is really a revered figure by many, many millions of Americans. But because uh, he got in a feud with uh, Donald Trump, he's persona non grata on the uh, Republican side, which is just ridiculous. It's absurd. And it's so indicative of how corrupt uh, the Republican Party has become how decrepit, how how corroded it has become under the leadership of Donald Trump. And so it was good to get reminded of all that. It makes me feel a little bit better about uh, the fact that a Biden presidency is looming. I still believe, though, that because of the issues of Biden's health and because of the pandemic and because of Kamala Harris as his vice presidential nominee, I, I can't feel comfortable about it. Uh, at all. Uh, the circumstances have dramatically changed and we, we are potentially heading towards a whole new America because of the special circumstances that currently exist. And so it didn't change my mind. I'm not going to vote for, for Joe Biden for reasons I'll explain shortly. I'm not going to vote for Donald Trump either. Uh, I don't have a, uh, a dog in this hunt. Uh, I, don't, I, I just want what's best for our country. I want a path where our country can survive. It's becoming more and more difficult for me to even find a path where our country can survive this uh, in the long run. 
uh, at least anything close to to what I grew up as, what was the United States of America. But I will say that for the first two nights of the convention, you know, I, I, I don't think that they've done that great a job from the production. I mean, some people have praised the production under the limitations that exist. But see, I don't even buy those limitations. See, yeah, they've done a great job after tying their own hands behind their back and, you know, one leg, uh, you know, is, is in shackles. So I guess if you use those standards, they've done a, a, a decent job of production. But that's all based in paying homage to the virus. And so to me, and again, I'm, I'm not the target demographic, but to me, the, the biggest problem I have with the Democratic Convention so far, other than some of the, the lefty looniness, is paying way too much homage to the virus. The entire thing is dictated by the virus and not just avoiding the virus, but avoiding any sort of perception that you're not constantly paying homage to the virus. Uh, Correct. And and that bothers me because, as you probably already know, since you're listening to this, I believe that we have dramatically overreacted to this virus, which is real and very troubling and terrible and horrible and created a, a bad, very bad situation, but one which I think we have made far worse than it needed to be for mostly political reasons. Now, I will be very, very, very curious to see, and I think it's an opportunity for Republicans. I don't know if they're going to take advantage of it because I have no faith in anything that's led by Donald Trump. But I would like to believe Republicans are going to be smart enough next week in their convention to loosen those shackles, to, to be uh, able to pay less homage to the virus and therefore be more, not clearly anything close to normal. There's not going to be a convention as we think of it. It's already been canceled twice, first in North Carolina, then in Florida. And now apparently Trump is going to take the, accept the nomination from the White House. Uh, so it's not going to be anything close to normal. But I would like to believe that they're going to be able to be a little bit closer to some semblance of normalcy because they don't have the same political restrictions when it comes to paying homage to the virus at all times. It's almost like a religion on the left now. You must pay homage to the virus at all moments. Uh, hopefully, Republicans are going to be smart enough to realize uh, that they don't have to do that. Uh, we'll see. I don't know. Uh, and again, I, I don't even know who the heck I'm rooting for anymore. Uh, you know, I, I, I feel better about Joe Biden, the man, uh, over the last couple of days after watching the Democratic convention. But I don't feel better about Democratic majorities. Uh, and I still even have questions about Biden. Uh, and and uh, it's interesting. Uh, oftentimes I will hear and see things that other people don't notice. And I think that happened last night during Jill Biden's address. Now, Jill Biden obviously is Joe Biden's wife. And I thought she was very effective. Here's, she is a teacher, and she decided to do her address live, although there were some awkward moments at the beginning of it from a technical standpoint, but no big deal. Uh, she did this from a school in Delaware where Joe Biden uh, you know, essentially has resided for most of his life and was a senator for many, many years. And so she does this address from a school, and... The, it starts off by her talking about how great schools normally are, the energy of a school, the laughter in a school, the sounds in a school. And, of course, that this year in most schools, we're not going to have that. And I thought, OK, that's a little odd to start that off, start off in that way, because, frankly, it's your allies 
that are causing that to be prevented. Now, you can argue whether or not that's the right thing or not, but the president of the United States, Donald Trump, has come out very, very strongly, although maybe not as strongly as he should have, uh, in favor of schools being open. The reason why the vast majority of schools are not going to be open is because of your allies. And your husband has made no effort whatsoever to promote the opening of schools. So I was put off a little bit right off the bat. But I thought, OK, you know, that maybe this is just a, a vehicle for her to get into the conversation. Uh, and, you know, and I'm interested to see where this is going. And I liked a lot of what she said. She comes off as credible, uh, likable, real, human, uh, you know, far more so than, than the Trump family does. I, I thought there was a lot of positives in it. And then at the end, she lost me because she said something which, you know, and I tweeted about it and some people reacted like, oh, that's a good point. Uh, but I, I don't think most people got what I was saying. And I don't think anybody in the media noticed this. And, and you can determine for yourself whether or not I'm over-interpreting, under-interpreting, overreacting, whatever. But she said effectively at the end of this address, now you remember, you got to understand the context. She's in a classroom. She starts this off by, boy, isn't it a shame we're not going to be able to have school normally this year in most places. And then she describes at the end when we can finally get back to normal school. And here's what she says. And with Joe as president, these classrooms will ring out with laughter and possibility once again. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. Hold on. You cannot be serious. Did you not just say, Joe Biden, now correct me if I'm wrong, the way I interpreted that is, those of you who uh, might suspect that the academic establishment and the teachers unions are taking a dive on schools not being open in reaction to the president saying that they should be open are actually right. That your suspicions that this is a political maneuver to try to sabotage the incumbency, the, the reelection campaign of Donald Trump, that that's correct. That's exactly what we're doing. Because let's follow the logic here. Why in the world would schools suddenly be able to reopen when Joe Biden is president? Again, here's what she said. And with Joe as president, these classrooms will ring out with laughter and possibility once again. What? what, what hold on. What, why? How? On what basis? How, how is the science going to suddenly change in, I guess, January, it's, it's ambiguous as to what the left really means here. Are they talking about when Joe Biden is elected or whether when he's inaugurated at the end of January or, or what is it? Or is there going to be some some, uh, you know, some time period where the left gets to show off about how good they are, how awesome they are at wearing masks and fighting the virus? And then we can declare it over and then we can go back to class. That's how I interpreted that, whether it was conscious, subconscious, intended or not. That was very telling. That was very telling to me that, wait a minute, hold on here. How, how in the world, and, and you know I hate Donald Trump, okay? But how in the world have we reached the upside-down world where a president can be in favor of schools opening? The left can reverse itself, including pediatricians, teachers' unions, what have you, in order to react to him to make sure that schools do not close. 
the, the Biden allies make sure schools do not open. And then we get to blame Donald Trump for the schools not being open. And we can then reopen them once the sin of Donald Trump's presidency has been expunged from the record. And we've done our penance. And now Joe Biden's been elected. Now we can have school again. That, what? It's just flat out ridiculous. That, that's how I interpret that. Now, I, you know, maybe I'm overinterpreting. I don't actually. I don't think so. I, I think what happened there that was that was the subconscious coming out almost by accident. Hey, when Joe is president, it's all gonna be fine. On on what basis? On, on what basis? What is he gonna do that's suddenly gonna make the virus go away enough for liberals to decide it's okay to have real school? Or or is this really all just political? Not all, but what I mean is regarding schools. Is, is that what's really going on here? Because that's what it feels like. That's what it feels like, that this is purely a political maneuver. And if you look at the timeline, it becomes abundantly obvious. Because it wasn't until after Trump came all out for schools, which I advised him to do on this podcast a couple of months ago, and he did so, it wasn't until after that that liberals switched, just like they switched on masks. All the experts said at the beginning, you know what, masks don't do very much. It's, they might even do more harm than good. Fauci said that. But then all of a sudden the left decides that masks are a virtue signal uh, against Donald Trump. They start masturbating with their masks. And on all the experts are like, oh, I better get on this train before it leaves. Otherwise, I'm not going to be perceived as one of the accepted cool experts anymore. Well, it's, it's the same thing in reverse. This school thing is a sham. Schools ought to be open, which is partially why I'm one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit here in California against Governor Newsom to allow schools to reopen if if the local jurisdictions believe that they should be open. But I I just that re, that one line really bothered me because I thought that was the smoking gun about what was really going on here with regard to schools, the virus and uh, the politics of all of it. And with Joe as president, these classrooms will ring out with laughter and possibility once again. How? Why? What's going to be different? What's going to be different in January? And by the way, it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> A lot of these schools, and again, I, I am the ant, most ardent anti-conspiracy person on the planet. A lot of these schools have said, both in the college and the high school level, that, uh, you know, well, we're, we're not going to open until at least November or January. What happens in November and January? What's the big magic there? Oh, oh, wait a minute. Hold on. We're having an election in January and an inauguration in, in I'm sorry, an inauguration in January and an election in November. Hmm. Gee. Uh, so, so basically what you're telling me is that uh, this is all political. That this is all uh, we, 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 we must be punished until uh, we, we rid ourselves. We do our penance. This is penance for having had Donald Trump as president. It has nothing to do with science. Don't give me this. Oh, it's all about the science. Bullshit. It's nothing to fucking do with science. It's a fucking politics. That's all it is. So don't give me this bullshit about it being science. It's not. It's political. Like so much of this is. And it's outrageous because kids are being harmed and they're going to be harmed for a fucking generation. And it uh, and it just it, as you can tell, and you haven't picked up on it yet, it pisses me off uh, and, and it's wrong.
Now, there are a lot of reasons that's not why, uh, I, I, but it certainly doesn't help, uh, why I'm not going to be able to vote for Joe Biden, even though I had originally intended to. If you had told me at the beginning of this whole process, uh, you know, two years ago, uh, that Joe Biden would be the, the nominee, I would have said, OK, I'll vote for Joe Biden. I wouldn't have been real thrilled with Kamala Harris, but I can't do so now in this particular world. And the final nail in that coffin came last week, just after this podcast, when Joe Biden came out in favor, it sounded like, of a federal mandate for every single person in the country to be forced to wear a mask outside for at least three months. He didn't even put an end date on it. Here's what that sounded like. Every single American should be wearing a mask when they're outside for the next three months at a minimum. Every governor should mandate, every governor should mandate mandatory mask wearing. If you had told me at the beginning of this year <laughs> that the Democratic presidential nominee, <laughs> the Joe Biden, the one who I thought was you know, at least somewhat rational, would come out in favor, and it's still, it's a little unclear, is he saying that if he was president, there would be a federal mandate. It appeared as if that's what he meant. But then he says every governor should mandate it. I don't know. Is he is he it's unclear from a technical standpoint what he means. But it's obvious that philosophically he believes that every single American should be required by the government, whether federal or by state, to wear a mask outside for three months at a minimum. You cannot be serious. Uh, now, that, that's it. That's, I can't do it. I, I cannot do it. Not just because I'm convinced that the mask issue is complete bullshit. I mean, if you, look, if you look at the stats here in America, there are many states, California being a great example, Hawaii, Washington, Nevada, Texas. These are all examples of places where masks did nothing except potentially exacerbate the number of cases. And when you look at Sweden and, and the fact that they never had masks at all, and now no one's dying there at, in Sweden. Uh, I mean, in there are other places. Now, you're going to be able to find places in the other direction, too, because guess what? When you have so many different locations— and you decide to cherry pick, you're going to be able to find some place that by accident masks appeared to work. But if they work, they should work everywhere. They should work everywhere. Instead, the opposite is the case. But, you know, so I think the mask uh, issue is completely been bastardized and politicized. I think mandates are abhorrent because if the government can do this to you, what can't they do? I really can't stand the fact that there's no end date. And the, the idea that Biden said three months at a minimum. Uh, and by the way, what happens in three months? Let me see. What happens in three months? In three months. Uh, let me see. Uh, three, oh, oh, that's right. There's a fucking election in three months. So in three months, the election will be uh, over at a minimum. That's what he says. At a minimum. So at least until I win, we all ought to be forced by the government to wear masks. But more importantly than all of that. It's what it says about Joe Biden, or at least the people around Joe Biden's philosophy with regard to how they're going to handle this once they're in power. And that's what really scares the living crap out of me, because I become I am increasingly convinced that from a data perspective, we are close. We're not there yet. We are close 
to potentially the end of this or at least a very significant pause in this, uh, which for reasons I'll get to momentarily. But from a political perspective, from a standpoint of getting our nerve back, from the standpoint of getting back to anything close to normalcy, we are in no better shape than we've, we've been in a, you know, since the beginning of this. We're making no progress. In fact, in many ways, I think we are going in the wrong direction. And what I now believe, you know, there's a lot of Republicans, a lot of Republicans who believe that on November 4th, after Biden wins, the pandemic is over. And there, that's that is an enticing thought. Boy, you know what? You know, I, I might make that deal. If I knew that was coming, I might say, you know what? OK, you know what? Let Biden and Harris win. Uh, if, they, if, they, if they're going to then all of a sudden start looking at this rationally and the pandemic is over and we can start to get back to, to regular life. You know what? I would make that deal. You know, especially if it got rid of Donald Trump uh, and it'd be wonderful if it, if it can be done in a way that where Trump was gone forever. Uh, you know, that's that's another story for another day, depending on the 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 uh, how much uh, Biden wins by the margins are going to be incredibly important here. But I don't believe that anymore. I don't believe that. I believe based upon that statement there by Joe Biden and by others, I now think there's a very good chance that there's going to be an extended period of time, how long, I don't know, where Democrats, once they get control, they then have to show off. They then have to have a period where they are the ones who kill the coronavirus. They're going to lock down harder because they don't have to worry about election for another two years and they got to show off. Let let us show you how this is really done. Because they can't possibly just say, "Oh, it's over," because they didn't get they didn't get credit for it. They're going to need credit for this. They're not going to be able to just say, "Oh, well, it's over," because then, effectively, they're saying that it wasn't Trump's fault because it ended under his reign. There's going to need to be a period of time where they're going to show off to tell the world, to tell the media, to show the public. This is how you really handle a pandemic. You have not seen anything yet. So we're going to make sure everybody's masked up for a period of time until we decide, you know what, it's been enough. And I don't know what, what, how long that is. It might be another fucking year because we don't have an election until 2022. Then they can claim they killed the virus, even when it's actually herd immunity that killed the virus. And uh, and, you know, then they can because there's no there, you can remember once Biden wins, there's going to be an extended period of time where he's not at fault for any of this. It's still going to be Trump's fault. So uh, it's depressing as hell. But I am becoming more and more convinced that the reality here is that a, a Biden win does not suddenly end the pandemic. I, I would still love for that to be the case. I would be thrilled if that ends up being reality. But I doubt it. And you know who else is making me feel like, uh, you know, that this scenario is, is not realistic? It's Dr. Fauci or Dr. Fraudchi, as I'm now going to refer to him uh, going forward. Dr. Fraudchi uh, is, is, boy, I'll tell you what, I nailed this guy from the very beginning. This guy is a fame horde and a fraud. Correct. Uh, and uh, since the last time we spoke, I mean, you, you can't even make this up. He, he is on the cover of In Style magazine. In Style magazine, sitting next to a pool alone with his legs crossed in a chair with sunglasses on. 
What? What? You cannot be serious. And, and then the, I, I'm not making this up. The headline for the article in InStyle magazine is, with all due modesty, I think I'm pretty effective. Those are the words of Dr. Fraudchi. It's just flat out ridiculous. Uh, this is a guy who has been wrong about everything, flip-flopped on everything, and if he's in charge and this whole thing has been a disaster, why does he not get any blame for that? Correct. I, w w how is this possible? How are we living in this alternative universe with Andrew Cuomo is a media hero and Dr. Fauci is a media hero, yet the whole th reaction to this has allegedly been a disaster regarding Donald Trump, whom I hate. That makes no fucking goddamn sense. And now f Dr. Fraudchi is saying, get this, you gotta love this. You know what? Even a, a vaccine, even a vaccine for the virus may not be able to get us back to any sense of normalcy. You cannot be serious. What? Wait a minute. We start off with uh, this is, uh, you know, 15 days to flatten the curve and get hospitals ready. Then we decide, well, you know, the hospitals were never overwhelmed. But let's continue this to avoid every death possible. And then the deaths don't come as badly as feared, although there's certainly been a lot of them, uh, depending on your definitions. And we decide, you know what, let's keep locking down to avoid every case we possibly can. Uh, even though we now know it's not nearly as deadly as we feared. Uh, so we're just going to keep going here and we'll just wait for a vaccine. And now we learn that even a vaccine is not going to be enough for Dr. Fraudchi. It's just flat out ridiculous. Unless that vaccine is way more effective than vaccines traditionally are. Uh, this guy is a menace. This guy is a fraud. This guy is a media whore who is invested in a lie. And, uh, and I told you this from day one, and I believe I have been vindicated far more than even I suspected. Uh, and the biggest mistake Donald Trump has made, certainly during this coronavirus situation, is to effectively give up his presidency to Dr. Fraudchi. And uh, if and when this is all said and done, my guess is Trump's going to probably admit that uh, to some degree, although he never admits uh, being wrong. As far as Trump is concerned, there's plenty of things to be upset about regarding him. Uh, he's been in, embroiled in a battle against the post office for much of the last week. Uh, in what I believe is obviously an effort to sow seeds of doubt about the election results and the reliability of mail-in ballots. Now, there are two possible motivations here, uh, and I'll get to those momentarily, but I want to play a clip. Uh, he's been saying lots of things about this whole issue, uh, and, and this one really got my attention because it's something that I have been concerned about for really four years about whether or not Trump was going to accept the results of a re-election campaign where he lost. And this is the, the, uh, the big the moment uh, when it became obviously clear that those fears were uh, very legitimate and that we we're headed for very, very dangerous territory. Because the only way we're going to lose this election is if the election is rigged. Remember that. The only way we're going to lose this election is if it is rigged. And in order to forward the rigging narrative, now remember, this is a narrative he tried in 2016, remember? Now, I perceived very much so in 2016 that the rigging narrative was simply an excuse for why he lost. This is a man with a massive ego who cannot 
possibly comprehend that he's not popular or that he would lose anything. And I think he was shocked that he ended up winning. So it was somewhat harmless, although not totally harmless at all, in 2016. I actually believe that the genius, although he was not smart enough to figure this out, the genius of the ringing narrative in 2016 was that it handicapped Obama and others into making sure Trump lost, not by some sort of nefarious means, but I'm talking about, like, I'll, I'll take this out of the theoretical into the practical. I've mentioned this before. I believe, and, I, and there's, there's been a lot of evidence to support this belief, I believe that because Trump was claiming the election, the election was rigged, it made sure that Obama was far more sidelined because he's the president of the United States. He did not want to forward that rigging narrative. And it also forced Obama to keep people like George W. Bush and Condoleezza Rice and other respectable Republicans on the sidelines in case they were needed if the election was close and Trump lost and there needed to be someone to come forward to calm the nation and say, no, buddy, Trump lost. You don't need to do that if someone is not forwarding this bogus, the election's rigged against me narrative. And so it had a major impact on how 2016 went down. I think that's one of the possibilities for what's happening in 2020. That's the more benign of the two motivations, that he's doing the same thing in 2020 that he did in 2016, which is he's protecting his own ego by saying, look, the only way we lose. Because the only way we're going to lose this election is if the election is rigged. Remember that. Right. So therefore, you're inherently protected. Right. If you lose, well, it was rigged against me. I was so dangerous. And uh, they had to take me out. Of course, that's absolutely outrageous for the president of the United States to saying that a United States presidential election is rigged. I mean, really? Really? You cannot be serious. Not to mention that it creates an enormous amount of distrust in our entire system, the essence of our system. It is an attack against democracy. It is absolutely outrageous. And he's going far beyond the election is rigged. He's even saying he deserves a third term. Because, because he says that his, his campaign was spied, which is not even true, was spied against. I don't even understand the, the logic of that. He is also now saying, and this is a little bit more serious, that if this whole mail-in balloting situation is not uh, fixed, that we should have a redo of the election. A redo. It's just flat out ridiculous. Now, is he doing all of this just to protect his ego? Or is he legitimately trying to get Americans, at least his Americans, his 45% of whatever it's going to be, to distrust the results in a way that allows him to somehow either stay in office or create a, a, a civil war type of situation where he has to be forced out? Or is there a hybrid? Is there a hybrid of those two motivations where he is setting himself up as a martyr for either some sort of media property he's going to do or another run for the presidency in 2024. None of the none of the three, uh, if there are three separate motivations that I'm outlining, are remotely good. None of them are good for the country. They're all incredibly bad for the country, and some are more dangerous than others. Obviously, the one related to not leaving office and potentially provoking a civil war would be the worst. But uh, this is this is something that is 
cannot be uh, underestimated. Uh, you know, I saw Michael Steele on MSNBC trying to, to sound the alarm. Michael Steele was a, a guest on this uh, podcast about a year or so ago, and a guy I like, former chairman of the Republican Party, basically sounding the, the alarm that this is the way that Trump's going to go here. He's not going to accept the results of this election. And I do believe that this is something that we really need to be focused on because this is the worst possible scenario. And I do believe that from an election standpoint, it is still very possible that that is the path we're going down. A fairly close, not super close right now, but fairly close from an electoral college perspective, loss for Donald Trump, which could be the absolute worst possible outcome for the nation if Trump decides that he's going to go down this path and not accept the results of the election. So this is something that, that, that needs to be understood and needs to be focused on. And frankly, Republicans ought to be condemning it, but of course they won't because they're all afraid of him. I have to mention, at least mention, that the, uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee put out a report on their investigation into the entire Russian intervention in the 2016 uh, campaign, and it is mind-blowing. I mean, in a rational world, it's all we would be talking about. In a rational world, it would end any uh, opportunity for Donald Trump to be reelected. In a rational world, uh, Robert Mueller ought to be embarrassed. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. I got to tell you, I think I called that one also right from the beginning, that Robert Mueller clearly lost his balls. It is, it is obvious that Mueller blew this. Uh, for whatever reasons, I don't know. He's probably never going to answer questions about this because he hasn't yet. But it is now clear, while there may not have been proven collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign, it is obvious, as I said many times, Trump lied to Mueller under oath. Correct. He committed clear and obvious perjury. Correct. Specifically about not remembering speaking to Roger Stone about WikiLeaks, among other things. And I still believe, and I'm curious what's going to happen when Michael Cohen's book comes out, but I still believe uh, that he facilitated, or at least his lawyers did, facilitated Michael Cohen lying about the timing of the infamous Trump Moscow Tower uh, project, which was still ongoing during the Republican primaries of 2016 and as Donald Trump was the presumptive Republican nominee in 2016, and that they did nothing but lie about that very key project, which I think was a massive motivator for Trump in what was really going on uh, during the 2016 election, which he never dreamed he was actually going to win. But there's all sorts of interesting things in the Senate Intelligence Report. What's important about this is this is a bipartisan report. This is bipartisan. This is a Republican-controlled committee the Senate Intelligence Committee. And yet the, this report is incredibly damaging to Trump. There's also some interesting tidbits there. I've always been fascinated by the, the circumstances and the timing of the infamous Access Hollywood tape, which came out just before the 2016 election. I have more questions based upon what's in the intelligence report about that. By the way, I've spoken fairly extensively to Billy Bush, who was obviously uh, in that tape with Donald Trump and got far more punished uh, than Donald Trump did uh, because of his role in that infamous tape. And I know Billy Bush has questions about how that tape uh, got out, when it got out, the circumstances uh, under which it got out. It still makes no sense to me that the Washington Post ends up releasing this just before NBC. This is an NBC tape that NBC clearly had knowledge of and was ready to release 
because they released it almost immediately after the Washington Post did. How is it that the Washington Post ends up getting this tape when the reporter that morning, who could have been on vacation or gotten sick, who the hell knows, had no idea the tape existed until uh, they got a tip that day. The the whole thing is very, very strange and fishy, but it's not really that relevant to to the Trump presidency or whether or not he should be reelected. It's just it's a it's a topic I find very fascinating. Uh, One other thing on Trump, uh, you know, so typical of Trump today. He's on Twitter urging a boycott of Goodyear tires, urging a a, a, an online Twitter based uh, boycott of Goodyear tires. All I know is what's on the internet. And why? I mean, first of all, the President of the United States should not be engaged in boycotts of any sort. He should certainly not be engaged in boycotts of an American company like Goodyear. The reason is because apparently the company has been uh, advising its employees that there are certain things that are verboten, that are politically incorrect, that are, I guess, hate speech, and one of them is any sort of MAGA material, making America great again whether it's MAGA hats or what have you. Now, I do not agree. I do not agree with Goodyear's policy. But as a private company, that's their, their right. Uh, and, you know, if, if people want to react to that, that's fine, too. That's part of the way the system works. So I don't agree with what Goodyear is doing. I think it's incredibly biased. You know, they're, they're fine with Black Lives Matter, but they're not okay with, with making America great again. That's problematic. I get it. But the president of the United States should not be urging boycotts of an American company based upon what is essentially a personal slight. He wants other people to do it. That's fine. But he should not be doing it, uh, certainly not during a, a, a public tweet. It's completely outrageous and so typical uh, of Donald Trump and a reminder of just how insane a second term with Donald Trump would be if he somehow were to win. Now, I'll give you an update on the politics and uh, where we stand on the reelection campaign in a moment. But first, I do want to get to that interview uh, that I referenced that deals with a- another man in the media who played an incredibly important role in how we got Donald Trump to begin with and a brand new documentary on his life. A couple of weeks ago on this uh, podcast, we interviewed the author of a book about Matt Drudge, who I believe to be one of the key people in facilitating the Trump presidency. Today, we're going to interview another guy who has done a documentary about another major media personality who played a pivotal role in a lot of things, but specifically the presidency of Donald Trump. And in fact, Trump is in this documentary film. It is directed by a guy by the name of Michael Barnes, who is a friend of mine, and he joins us now. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. Happy to be on. So your your documentary is called Man in the Arena. It's about Roger Ailes, the guy who was probably most famous for founding Fox News Channel. And as already referenced, uh, Donald Trump is interviewed in this documentary. Uh, this documentary is a lot of different things. It is the story of Roger Ailes' life, but it is also uh, the history of the attempt to try to bring fairness from a conservative perspective in the mainstream media, which then facilitates Fox News Channel and brings us to where we are today. How did you get involved in this project in your in directing your first documentary film with the the ultimate telling of the story of Roger Ailes' life? Uh, well, thanks, John. I got involved somewhat, not by accident, but not in a manner that I expected to happen. I knew Roger. Um, 
I had been on kind of the outer rings of knowing him. He was going to leave Fox News around 2011. He was kicking the tires. And he wanted to engage a lawyer who had credibility in the mergers and acquisitions space, which is what I do, and uh, that could never be connected to him so that the tires could be kicked anonymously, so to speak. And I was friends with uh, Pat Cadell, who passed away last year. And Pat said, Roger, I got just the guy for you, Michael Barnes. And that's how I met Roger. And that never happened, of course, 10 years ago. He stayed at Fox. But pursuant to that, I stayed in touch with Roger. And then when he had the downfall from Fox and passed away, um, it piqued my interest. I really didn't know much about Roger. So I started digging and came across the details of what an incredible life, times, and influence he had. And that got me, that's how I got involved in the project. So I've watched the film. It's uh, it's almost two hours long. Uh, it's very well done. It's way more interesting than I even expected it to be. There's several different elements of man in the in the arena. Let's deal first with the story of Roger Ailes' life. It's far more involved and far more, I think, significant to public events than most people realize. I think most people just associate him. Uh, with Fox News Channel, conservative media, uh, the downfall. Uh, but there's a lot more to it than that. So, so just give us a, a short version of, of what the, the film deals with in that realm. Sure. Uh, the, the film spends a good portion about Roger's life and influence before he started Fox News in the mid-90s. And that life alone and his influence was worthy of its own documentary. He was a... Uh, kid from the wrong side of the tracks out of the Middle West, grew up in World War II, and was a, became a producer out of nowhere for the Mike Douglas Show, which was a very popular talk show beginning in the 1960s, and left that push job to go run television for an unlikable candidate named Richard Nixon, who was portrayed as a loser and uh, you know a poor choice in some ways, and Roger convinced Nixon to accept the reality of television as a campaign influencer. And he, he worked with, with uh, Nixon to create the Man in the Arena direct television uh, series, which we would know today as a town hall. And that got Nixon elected by a narrow margin. He then uh, went on and by the 1980s did consulting for Republican candidates for Senate, House, Governor, Mayor, and just had incredible success, such success that Richard Gere shadowed him to make a movie about political consultants in the 1980s. And he, Roger was very involved, did debate coaching with President Reagan in his second term, and is largely credited with having saved Reagan from his disastrous first debate performance um, when the age issue was being put forth, uh, not unlike what we have today with Biden. And then uh, for his third presidential campaign, he did the communications for George Bush, the senior, in 1988, who was 17 points behind. And Roger, again, um, handled the media for that campaign. And Bush came from behind and won in somewhat of a landslide. So he has those three political consultations, as well as many senators and, and governors and mayors like Rudy Giuliani, that he put into office before the early 90s. And people, as you mentioned, only know him from the mid-90s when he 
founded Fox News. And as already referenced, and we'll get to shortly, uh, you have Donald Trump, an interview with uh, President Trump from the Rose Garden, uh, essentially saying that uh, he would not be there without uh, Roger Ailes. Before we get into the why of that, I, I do want to address something that most people probably still associate Roger Ailes with. In fact, it might be the most well-known thing about him, which in my view is, especially after watching your documentary, is a, tr- is a tragedy, which is his downfall and the, the alleged uh, sexual misconduct, sexual harassment, the lawsuits at Fox News Channel. I know that you are at least somewhat restricted, and the film was somewhat restricted in getting into the details of that because of agreements that Roger Ailes made when he left Fox News Channel. But uh, in, 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 in totality, having researched this very deeply, Michael, what is your view of the validity of the claims against Roger Ailes, with, which ended up resulting in his ultimate downfall at Fox News Channel? Well, uh, again, I, I, my, my film doesn't litigate or relitigate the what we know as Me Too uh, movement, which you know, has its strong... Um, there's strong points to the Me Too movement, and there's also some some weak points, some embarrassing points to the Me Too movement. And the film doesn't try to litigate that cultural issue, which is being litigated, you know, daily in the press and in the courts, etc. Um, but Roger Roger's tenure at Fox ended, you know, shortly before the Me Too movement really picked up. But he's been conflated into it with a lot of other unsavory characters. That are the poster children. Do you believe he? Do you believe he was guilty of the accusations that uh, led to his downfall at Fox News Channel? The here's how I'll answer that. What what allegation? There's when I say conflation, I'm using that word very carefully. Who accused him of what? And it's a very interesting question. What was Roger Ailes actually accused of mm-hmm. by actual living? people who said, hey, I accuse you of X. I'd challenge if you brought 100 people in and say, what was he actually accused of? That 99 of them would say, I, I don't know. He, there was something about a downfall. Gosh, I saw this fictionalized movie on <laughs> that I saw that he was really a bad guy. Well, what were the actual allegations? That question, the press and everyone else, has been spectacularly... Um, not interested in asking. And my film addresses that a little bit. It does address, you know, one of the, the very public accusations made by Megyn Kelly and the circumstances in which she made that accusation. And it explains some of the context. Again, I don't dwell on it, but I do give the viewers some context as to what that accusation was and why they may think it was true, why they may think it was false, why they may think it was somewhere in the middle. Uh, but the idea that there were you know, women lined up, you know, filing bona fide complaints against Roger Ailes, I couldn't find any evidence of that. I actually think you're underplaying the Megyn Kelly aspect of your documentary. I think you eviscerate <laughs> Megyn Kelly's supposed allegation against Roger Ailes. You do so uh, from numerous perspectives, including uh, the words of Roger Ailes himself, which, to my knowledge, have never been heard before. And uh, and I believe uh, now, after watching your film, that Roger Ailes was railroaded because he was at the end of his career and uh, and was vulnerable and that the Murdoch Murdoch family 
that was ready to take over basically took him out, and he was uh, enfeebled by his, his own health and age, and it was a, basically a perfect storm of circumstances where people took advantage of him. Uh, I, I, can, I, for, for some, I think you're going to agree with me on that, but I know I'm, I'm more well, free to say that. You're, you're more free to say that. Look, John, if, if my goal as a filmmaker, as the writer-director of Man in the Arena, was that if you know, a, a couple could go in and watch the film and probably either not know about Roger Ailes or one or both of them have some preconceived opinion as to what happened, that when they left the movie, they could sit down and have a drink and say, wow, I didn't know that. And there could be a very interesting discussion that follows not only from the new information and the primary sources in this movie, but that reasonable people may come to the conclusion that you've come to, which is this isn't what I've been told at all. Right. And that's the purpose of the film is to really try to lay it out that way. Now, not, not just with me, too, but with with the entire media political landscape of the prior decade. Right. And now, as interesting as the story of Roger Ailes' life is and, and whether or not his downfall was justified or, or mischaracterized uh, by by the media and others, as important as that is to me, the essence of the film is you're usually you're basically using his life story to tell the narrative of evolution of our news media and our politics, and specifically with regard to uh, the conservative efforts for fairness within the media and then eventually breaking off from the mainstream news media to create their own media, specifically Fox News Channel, and how that ends up leading to Donald Trump. Talk a little bit about that process. Yeah. Well, do we have uh, four days? <laughs> <laughs> can, can you give me a minute or two? <laughs> yeah, of course I will. Well, f- and, and I have to plug the movie. I say first, watch Man in the Arena at maninthearena.com on various platforms, and we'll answer that question very entertainingly, and it'll, it'll, uh, people will love it. But in, in encapsulation, um, as, as Roger Ailes himself points out in the film, the, the network news, as we would know, mainstream media news after World War II, was viewed as a public service. It wasn't a profit center. And when we had a common enemy and we were post-war, there was a certain national consensus, a, a mainstream view. And I think fair people would say that the, the, the network newscasts and the, and the newspapers largely were in the middle. They played it down the middle with you know some exceptions people can, can argue about. But at some point, whether it was the 1960s the late 50s, 1970s, people can argue when it was, that the mainstream media stopped playing that role and evolved into more of, rather than playing it down the middle, but rather started skewing things politically. And the types of bias aren't just coming out and saying, hey, we think position A is better or candidate B is better, but rather bias is by omission, by simply not covering certain stories, by ignoring them. And, you know, we, we all can take our communications classes and learn about that. But this film tracks that, along with popular culture and what Roger's role was in entertainment. And as that process, he thought, moved, moved in that direction that the mainstream media, and particularly the news, was becoming more and more to the left, including by omission, by not including any conservative voices at all, or covering conservative stories, it left a flank open for anyone to jump in. And that anyone was 
him teaming up with Rupert Murdoch, who was willing to write a billion-dollar check and gamble that Roger was correct. Not to have a right-wing network, but rather to have a network that just flanked the other network to the center, and that that was enough to change the landscape. No one thought it was going to be the success it was going to be. But not only was he correct, but he was correct again and again and again, and he managed it very well, and it became Fox News. Now, that, that's the quick story. Right. And as you well know, I've been at the front lines of this media bias battle for, for most of my career. Uh, and uh, and it's 100 percent a just battle. Uh, but I have a somewhat, among conservatives at least, contrarian view about how this has all turned out. And I want to get your thoughts on this. Sure. Because because while I believe at the beginning Fox News Channel played an important role to keep the rest of the news media honest, I think it has evolved into something that not by intent necessarily, although sometimes I think I don't think Fox News Channel was shedding many tears over the eight years of the Obama presidency where they made a boatload of money from increased ratings. And I, and I, and I think MSNBC, uh, you know, experiences the same thing in the Trump presidency. There's a phenomenon there where where elements of the news media are happy to be on defense rather than offense. But when you look at the, the totality of the record, uh, especially in the, uh, with regard to the presidency, in the Fox News Channel era, there's only one election since Fox News Channel became an, a legitimate entity where re- the Republican candidate won the popular vote for president in this country. And in the previous 20 years, that had happened numerous times in landslides. Now, causation is, 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 is not, you know, does not equal, uh, correlation does not equal causation. However, uh, you know, I would argue that essentially what has happened here is conservative voices have put themselves in a bubble a bubble that cannot reach over 50 percent of the public anymore, and that this actually has had a deleterious effect on conservatism. What do you make of that assessment? Sure. Look, that's a, that's a very good assessment. And if in any serious you know, discussion amongst the adults of the media landscape, there's a couple of theories that would need to be considered. And that's certainly one of them, because you, you can't argue with <laughs> polarization that exists today, and you correctly point out, the Fox of the early years is probably not the Fox that people watch today. I don't watch cable news, so I'm probably the wrong guy to ask. But I will point out something for your analysis that, again, I think the adults at the table would have to discuss, and that is when Fox started, we were in a disruptive environment. There were new cable stations that cost a billion dollars being launched disrupting the ecosystem, and that would be CNN, which is a 17-year monopoly. There really isn't any new cable news channel since the mid-'90s, not that I know of. But it's been disrupted by other media, digital media, whether it was Yahoo in the old days and now Twitter and social media. So the the factors that have led to the siloification, how's that for a word? Mm -hmm. We'll we'll, we'll give you a, a... copyright on that, the silofication <laughs> of media, um, it could, you know, Fox News as a cable outlet could certainly be one factor, but you'd also have to look at social media and, frankly, the lack of new disruptors in the cable news space. 
And, and look, you could write a PhD thesis on this. Oh, no, it's far more complex. I agree that it's far more complex than Fox News Channel. But Fox News Channel is emblematic, obviously, for sure. for good reasons it, of this it, entire it, issue. It, it's a great place to start the, right. the conversation. And as Laura Logan, who was the 60 Minutes reporter for many years and was kind enough to uh, give you know to be interviewed in Man in the Arena, as she said, just deadpanned. And she said, look, people want to point to Fox News as being – and our cable news environment as being, um, you know, a signal of how, um, you know, uh, divided we are. Maybe it's a symbol of how free we are. And that really influenced me when she gave me that perspective, having, you know, covered, you know, dictatorships and tyrannies and war-torn areas all over the world. It's like, wow, that's an interesting perspective. Um, so, again, the would be another interview or another person at the table, <laughs> which I tried to cover in this, you know, in accordance with your theory of what is the effect of Fox News and what was Rogers' role in that, it's it's persistent, it's over decades, and it's definitely had an effect on where we are today, no doubt. You mentioned uh, interviews that you did. Uh, There's a lot of big names in this documentary, Man in the Arena. And, in fact, you have John Voight, Academy Award-winning actor, uh, voice uh, your film. Uh, the, how did how did how did you get him to do this? I, I know, you know I, I've I've met him several times. I mean, he he he's uh, quite a character, as you know, and and not afraid of of upsetting the the liberal uh, establishment media. But uh, that's that's pretty cool to get John Voight as the voiceover guy. You know, I, <laughs> I I was sitting around with a couple of my producers, and when we decided that Roger Ailes' voice narrates most of the film, I'll, I'll give that away. And that's one of the unique things here is I had access to some tapes that were never supposed to be made public. Um, and he end up, ends up narrating. But we needed a co-narrator. And we were sit, sitting around thinking, boy, who would be willing to do this and who has the voice? And someone mentioned Ray Donovan's show, and we just we all just said, my God, John Voight would be perfect. And he'd probably be willing to do it because he was friendly with Roger. So I, I made contact with him, and <laughs> a, you know, I think I texted or left a message. And a day later, we're sitting at lunch, and my phone rings, and it says John Voight. <laughs> it didn't say Academy Award winner John Voight. It just said John Voight. And I'm like, savor this. How great is this? And I pitched him, and he readily agreed to do it, thankfully, because I think his, not only is his voice fantastic, but it brings with him that, that gravitas, kind of like a James Earl Jones, that, that gravitas that is mm-hmm. John Voight in his voice. So um, it was... I, I'm honored to that he came along, and he co-narrates along with Roger Ailes' voice. Now, you you also interviewed Donald Trump briefly uh, from the Rose Garden. Uh, it's extraordinary that the president of the United States would one do an interview for a documentary, but two do an interview for a documentary about the life of a man who had been disgraced, uh, essentially during his, not necessarily his term in office, but uh, close to his term in office during his campaign uh, for the presidency. Normally, uh, presidents would would never do that. Tell us about uh, Trump's role in this. <laughs> and, and three, you know, do it for a first-time filmmaker. We didn't know. So um, that came about in a very, very, very interesting chain of events. And I'll just give the, the, the quick tell, which is Roger Ailes, um, back when he was the chairman, or he was president of CNBC and one of its affiliated networks called America's Talking, which became MSNBC. Roger had a talk show on that back in the mid-90s. And he 
interviewed Donald Trump in one segment for a half an hour. Donald was, I think it was going to be the parade of some parade in New York City. And in this interview, which I have a copy of, Roger asked Donald Trump, the citizen in 1995, hey, would you ever run for office? And the two of them start spitballing that they're both too blunt, and particularly Donald Trump is too blunt to run for office, and that he would he could never run because he's too blunt. Well, I took that, did a cut of it for 45 seconds, and through a contact at the White House, they showed that to the president. And he said, okay, I'll be in your movie. Because I think he just realized he and Roger had a rapport and that Roger asked really good questions back in the mid-90s. And so, you know, maybe the documentary would be the same. So well, it was, well, he it said, was sort of a Hail Mary pass, and it sort of worked. And we ended up uh, getting a couple minutes with Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, from the, the Rose Garden. And uh, as you mentioned, we used it in the movie. And he essentially, which is remarkable considering his ego, uh, he gives Roger Ailes credit uh, for why he is there as president. Now, it was unclear as to whether or not it was direct uh, impact of Roger Ailes or just the, the general uh, influence of Fox News Channel and, you know, alternative conservative media. Uh, it, was an, it, was, uh, it was uncertain to me what Trump meant, but it was certainly a remarkable statement uh, from the president. Now, when, when you and I uh, you know, first talked about this many months ago before the world changed with coronavirus and, and everything else, and you mentioned that uh, Trump had done an interview for your movie— uh, I know you you anticipated that that Trump was actually going to maybe tweet about it or or help uh, uh, spread the word about it in any way. Has he done that yet? Well, the the it was a little more than that. The you know coronavirus changed everything, but the uh, the plan for the movie, which had I don't want to say too much, I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but which had been approved, which is we were going to premiere the movie at the White House. That was what was going to happen this spring. And coronavirus changed a lot of things. And so that's where we wanted this movie to premiere. And, and the plans were being put in place to have that happen. And, of course, that changed. So uh, having a sitting president not only be in a film where he says in the film, I encourage people to go watch the movie, Man in the Arena, maninthearena.com. Um, Donald Trump admits in the film, well, I didn't always get along that well with Roger. You know, sometimes he said things I didn't like. But then he, he admits that the platform, the free speech platform known as Fox News and what Roger had done in his career was instrumental in his voice and other voices which had been shut out by the other media outlets. It was instrumental in him breaking through to an audience. And, and that's the connection. So we, we wanted and we had we have President Trump in the movie and then we were going to platform it there from the White House. But that didn't happen, and I guess you can. You, I obviously can understand with the coronavirus. But you also haven't gotten your presidential tweet, have you? Uh, I don't know, actually. Oh come on! You would know if you got. A... I actually don't. I, 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 don't, <laughs> I, I actually don't know. I, I, I imagine I probably have a hundred phone calls. If I did, I, I just don't know. <laughs> I don't um, think you do. Which I, I, okay. I think I warned you at the time. Uh, okay, it was going to probably be the case. But look, I, I love the movie. The movie is. The movie is really well done. You deserve a lot of credit for it. Well, thank you. And and I want to just finish up with a couple of thoughts on on Ailes and Trump and where we are today. Uh, you know, Ailes, as is documented in the movie, played a critical role in several Republican presidential campaigns. 
and and even conventions and and debate preps. Can you give me your your sense of what ails? And I know you don't speak for him, but just as someone who studied his life, what do you think uh, he would be telling Donald Trump today or advising him uh, with regard to how he can get back into this general election battle against Joe Biden? Yeah, sure. Well, it's, it, you, you make a very good distinction. Roger Ailes spent decades as a political consultant, and people know him as the chief of a network. So I'll address that as if he were not a chief of a network, but rather, but rather was a political consultant in the manner that he elected Nixon, re-elected Reagan, and then elected Bush. Um, his advice, particularly to Nixon, was don't try to don't be somebody you're not. You know, don't be all try to be all warm and cuddly. The world's in crisis. They want a strong leader to get up there and have a command of things. And I think his advice, if he were advising, um, you know, President Trump on his re-election, would be consistent with that, which is know your type, play the type. And because Roger was, you know, fundamentally he was a director, he was a television director. And I think people would agree that when Trump is off message, President Trump is off message, or perhaps takes the bait from hostile press, he does that too much, he gets in trouble and he gets crossed up. And I think the, the press has realized that and, and he gets baited. I think Roger's advice would be don't take the bait, stay on message, and stick with what you're strong at. And, um, and that's somewhat of a vague answer, but I think that's what Roger did with other presidential candidates, particularly Nixon in the Man in the Arena uh, programs that he did. And I think that would be his advice to Trump. Stick with your strength. Don't take the bait. You know, and pick fights with people. Do you um, do you think, Michael, that Roger Ailes would at all, if he were still alive today, rue uh, this, um, lack of a better term, monster that he helped create, uh, which appears as if it's on the verge of creating a massive uh, backlash against what's left of conservatism and that uh, could put us, assuming Biden wins with Democratic majorities, could put us into... Uh, some sort of uh, a new realm of socialism in this country. What, what do you make? What do you think Roger Ailes would make of of what he helped create and the backlash that appears to be about to ensue? Are you referring to Fox News? I'm, I'm not quite sure what the it well. Is. I mean, just the it meaning Roger Ailes is someone who cared about this country, cared about conservatism. I'm not even worried about the the Fox News Channel angle. I I just think that. You know, there's a chance that someone like Roger Ailes might go, whoa, wait a minute, hold on. <laughs> this didn't work out very well uh, because what we're about to see is a massive backlash to to the Trump era. Yeah. Um, whether it's a, it, you asked a very compound question. So, I would, again, we'd have to have four hours and a bottle of wine in front of us to, to, to break it down. I think Roger Ailes would feel a sense of urgency. Um, that despite what everyone says, that this this election really matters this year, I think he would be sounding the alarm that this election really matters because um, the country may go in a direction that can't be reversed. Um, and what that's a, that's probably as much as I can 
Hey, See, I, I, I actually, know, Michael. I, I mean, I know that you're. I know you're very hesitant to talk about what Roger Ailes would do since he's no longer here. But I, 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 I personally believe he would be much stronger in his language with Trump. I think uh, he he needs to, in my view, to have any shot at winning this election. He needs to make this crystal clear that what this election is about, and I'm not going to vote for Donald Trump, me personally, but if I was advising him, and I think I can channel Roger Ailes pretty decently even before I saw your movie, it would be you need to make it clear that this is about what kind of an America you want in the future. Do you, do you, and, do you want and, a mask-wearing, locked-down, no-football-playing socialist country, or do you want some semblance of America as we knew it to be? That needs to be the decision, and that needs to be clear, crystal clear. And right now, that's not being made crystal clear. I think, John, I think you're, you're touching upon exactly the kind of advice Roger would give. Roger said this was you know, publicly. He said this in books and in, in, in materials. He said people, and we say so in the movie, you know, people need a reason to fire an incumbent. And if things are going okay, incumbents don't get fired. If people perceive things are not going well, they want to blame somebody. They want to throw the bums out. And that's the situation that exists, whether it's Donald Trump's fault or he just had great opponents. That situation has been created. And what you just mentioned, which is if there's some semblance of the electorate wanting to throw the bums out, you better paint a really clear picture of who you're going to bring in. And I, I think that's a fair comment that that's <laughs> the, the re-election campaign would, if Roger were advising them, would probably be stressing the importance of painting that picture. Okay, fair enough. M- Michael Barnes, uh, director of the documentary film Man in the Arena, which I definitely recommend on numerous levels. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us, and good luck with the movie. Thanks, John. I really appreciate it. As far as the political polling and where it stands, the media won't tell you this, but there's something remarkable that has occurred in the last week, and that is virtually nothing. There has been absolutely no bump because of the Kamala Harris pick at all that I can see. Now, a couple polls might show, uh, you know, Biden up a couple points, but there's other polls that show him actually down against Trump in a general election popular vote uh, since the Harris pick. There is virtually no bump. In fact, you could even argue a small decrease, but I'm not willing to to make that conclusion yet because there's just too much uh, noise. But there is absolutely no evidence right now that Joe Biden is being helped by the Kamala Harris, the Kamala Harris uh, vice presidential pick now. I do think that there will be a bump because of this convention, assuming it goes well the next uh, two days uh, after this uh, podcast on Wednesday and Thursday evenings. Uh, And since most of it's on tape, it's hard to see how it doesn't, although I I guess Biden's going to have to go live for a few minutes to give his acceptance speech. And so that might be interesting. But uh, assuming that nothing goes wrong, uh, they, they will get a bump from this convention. And if after the conventions are over or at the very least a week from today, if Biden's popular vote nationwide lead over Trump doesn't go up to about 10 points or over 10 points, um, then then you know what? This is probably going to go down to the wire. If it does get to 10 points in the next week or two, and if it's at, and if it's over 10 points after the Republican convention next week, it's over. Uh, Trump cannot overcome that, uh, barring some sort of massive act of God. But we're not there yet. 
We're not at 10 points. We're actually just over seven points right now. That means Biden would win today, uh, but the Electoral College might be fairly close. He would still win the Electoral College, um, but that's still within the ballpark. That's still within the theoretical realm of possibility for Trump to make a comeback. So Trump still has a pulse. He's a heavy underdog. I'm going to keep the percentages right now of Trump winning re-election at 15 percent. I'm not sure it's going to get much higher than that, but we'll see. Obviously, if it does, we'll update you on the next episode of the Individual One Podcast. Until then, please subscribe, rate, review, and share uh, this via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual the Number One Pod. That's at Individual the Number One Pod. Until next week, my name is John Ziegler. This is the Global Story Network. (laughs) 